to the Learning 3.0 podcast. I'm Rustika Lamb from Bloom, and in each episode, I chat to learning and technology thought leaders and how to support business performance through people performance. In this bonkers episode, there's a David James acronym. He's the host of the Learning and Development podcast. We talk about capability leaders and helping them understand the wider economic environment and what that means for business, learning teams, and technology in these times. He's a veritable fire hose of information. You may need to listen to it more than once. An absolute treat of what Learning 3.0 is all about. David, welcome to the Learning 3.0 podcast. Thank you, Rustika. It's a pleasure to be with you. Excellent. And you're there in the morning with your coffee. So really pleased to see that you are ready and raring to go. I am. I am indeed. Thank you. (laughs) Excellent. And I must thank you, actually. It's really interesting. My team had been prompting me for a very long time to do podcasts. And I'm going, no, 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 I'm not doing podcasts. Don't ask me why. And then someone I really respect in the industry said to me, you know what, because I've been recommending your podcast, the Learning and Development podcast everywhere. And this woman had actually been listening to and she goes, you know what, Rustika, we need a David James in New Zealand. I reckon you could be the David James in New Zealand. So I went, (laughs) okay, it's all right. I've heard it enough now. So that's darn big boots to fill, but um, really appreciate you coming on and uh, talking about the future of learning. Obviously, and I've got this thing that I think with the recent pandemic, I think us Gen X is an amazing space to really make a difference in learning and development and actually understand what's been going on. We are at that age, we've got quite a bit of experience and we've seen a lot of things and we've actually seen a couple of recessions in the past, 2002, 2008. And obviously there will be some shakeout and some economic shakeout as well with this one. What were your observations of being around in 2002 and 2008 for learning and development? Well, first of all, I'd say that um, 2002 and my situation wasn't as keenly felt as as it would have been for others. So I was based in London, which is a bit of a bubble and is protected from even some of the harshest economic conditions. So 2002, I wasn't greatly affected, if at all. But 2008 is similar to what I'm seeing now, as in it was telegraphed. We could say that we were going to hit a recession before we were in a recession. And because of that, and I was at Disney at the time, we were trying to anticipate the hit. And when I say we, of course, um, Mm -hmm. the rumblings at Disney were that um, they were worried that Europe was going to become like Japan and have a decade of stagnation. And so when we heard that news, we thought, well, There are two parts of an organization that is stripped back in a recession, and that's generally marketing and learning and development. Mm -hmm. So we really did hold on to our hats. And whilst our budget was slashed around us, and I went from something like a £6 million budget to a £600,000 budget, I mean, it was was minuscule. Uh, I mean, looking back, £600,000 is still quite significant, but I think it's from where it's cut from to where it lands is always quite daunting. And we knew we were going to be doing more with less. Back then, what, 2008, 2009, I was still pretty green as a D-manager as well. And I was still running schedules of programs Mm -hmm. and thinking that that was good enough. Anyone who's known known my story from other podcasts and the stories that I tell on my own will know that uh, that it wasn't until I became a senior L&D leader that I realized that not only were the conversations very different at executive level, but the expectations were different in terms of results. Strangely and contradictorily, the expectations were still the same. So, David, you run programs. And so could you run a program to equip Italy (laughs) to digitally transform? I'm there thinking, no, (laughs) no, I can't. (laughs) Uh, Training courses can be good, but they can't be that good. And so um, 
So it wasn't until later in my career that I realized that, that I needed to do something different. But the recession that hit in 2008 and then uh, the repercussions of which lasted for a good three or four years meant that pretty much my whole time at Disney saw more and more operational efficiencies, which means more and more cuts that mm-hmm. people are expected to either continue more often to pivot with less resource to get behind it, which is a huge challenge. And I know on a workforce, it can be incredibly draining because the message you're always hearing is, we need to do more, we need to do more, we need to do this. And But you are getting the funds and the resources in order to deliver that diminished as you go. And I think that what we're looking at now is going to be comparable to that as you can see it coming. Mm. Not only in the UK and in Europe now, are we facing the the harsh economic reality of both lost opportunity as well as lost revenue. I mean, this is going to go across a lot of organisations. We've also got to face the potential of a no-deal Brexit, which is looking highly likely. And that's not a UK-centric repercussion either. That's going to have repercussions across Europe. And I know that there are a lot of people who don't believe that there will be economic repercussions of a a no-deal Brexit, that there will only be an upside. But I think that what this is, at the very least, is a dress rehearsal for what a restriction on trade looks like. There mm. are restrictions on trade because of people's lockdown and people's ability to have workforces in restaurants and in shops. So those are restrictions. But when you impose then legal restrictions on supply chains, you'll then see that there is an economic impact as well. So we're seeing that that isn't just a pipe dream or project fear, that there's going to be an economic impact there, which could mean that not just next year is within the depths of recession, but perhaps the year after. And so what does that mean? What what it means right now in preparation for this is that in the UK, unemployment has doubled. So it's gone Mm. from a million to to just under two million. But the furlough scheme means that the government are protecting people's jobs until now the end of August at 80% wages and probably 60% till October. So what happens then? What we're predicting is that organisations will let go those people whose wages are being covered by the government. So unemployment could be an uncapped figure. And so, so a recession isn't just a repercussion for organisations as we can look back to 2002 and 2008 to explore, but it is going to be hardship for families as well. And I don't want to be a doom monger and say that things are all going to be bad, but I think we should hold on to our hats and expect a pretty torrid time for the coming months. Mm, Absolutely. And for our New Zealand listeners, a no exit Brexit, do you want to explain what that is? And the furlough scheme, what what those things are, because I understand about the restrictions of trade and in furlough, we're having something similar here. But if you could just explain what that means, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So if I start with, uh, with furlough, to prevent mass unemployment in, certainly in jobs where the individuals were expected to go to restaurants, to into retail, during lockdown, or, or in every, any offices where it's dependent upon people congregating anywhere and where they couldn't work from home, to make sure that their jobs were protected, the government committed to paying 80% of wages, which has extended to about 8 million people in the UK, which has pretty much guaranteed that during the lockdown that they wouldn't lose their jobs. Now, it's not always been the case. I think that, uh, that certain airlines have let people go 
I think because they've still got to pay their benefits and stuff. But what, what it's generally done is meant that 8 million people had their jobs protected. When you consider yes. now that there's 2 million people and that's doubled, 8 million would pretty much have... And of course, the economy is based on uh, consumer confidence and consumer spending. So if you've got 10 million people unemployed, then the economy could perhaps have collapsed. Mm. Um, so, 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 so that's furlough. We've had the same thing here. And they've yeah. just extended it by four And then weeks. it's for four weeks, yeah. Well, we had, uh, I think it was 12, then four. So, yeah. And Brexit? No exit Brexit? Yes, Brexit. Everybody knows that the UK has left the European Union. Mm-hmm. And there is a 12-month transition period that started on the 31st of January for the UK to negotiate a new trade deal with its EU partners, the other 27 countries. At this stage, there are some discrepancies around what the new fishing arrangements may be because going back hundreds of years, many of the European countries fish in what can be deemed UK waters. And I think the UK wants a clean break and to negotiate a free trade agreement where the European Union is seeking to negotiate softer terms, perhaps. But Brexit was sold on taking back control. And if control isn't gained in a certain way, then the government seemed that they would lose trust. It just seems that they're not negotiating at the moment. No deal Brexit means that we leave the EU without a trade deal, which means that we don't have laws that would govern the importing and the exporting of goods, which means that our farming trade, which relies 80% on exports, those poor animals, where are those animals going to go? I mean, I know that this isn't, this isn't about, uh, about <laughs> this is <not> animals. <laughs> this is about money. Uh, so, 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 so I'm speaking like a vegetarian, which I am. Um, but, uh, Good to hear. But yeah, so the, the economic impact is going to be that we are not able to trade and, and considering that at the very least in the UK, we import 60% of our food, our European partners not able to export that to us. So, so there's, there's a lot riding on it. But um, I think that um, what is likely to happen is the UK government wants to play hardball, wants to show the UK population who's boss. Uh, and I think that, uh, that they would like a cliff edge Brexit to show the rest of the world that we mean business, even mm. if that means cutting our nose off to spite our face. So there's a few things there, I guess, is one is that really we don't know the impact until the furloughing scheme is over. And you said around October, could that doubling of you know up to 2 million could be doubling again, for example? Yep. There's, I always see where there's, where there's a gap. So for example, everything seems to be a lot more local. We've certainly seen a very strong support local, you know, here in New Zealand. So therefore, does that see the rise of the entrepreneur would be my second question. And to fill those gaps, you know, if the UK is importing 60% of food, does that mean that, you know, those people that could actually be growing food and supporting food and, and actually the, that rise of the whole rise of the entrepreneur? And you, you touched briefly on trust as well as a third point. I think that's going to be just critical going forward on the new way of doing business in L&D as well. Are you trusted in that whole conversation around trusted advisor? What are your thoughts on those three things? I'm fearful for unemployment, first of all. Uh, I, again, I don't wish to be a doom monger, but a realist as well, that furloughing is currently keeping people within their roles and we're not in the recession yet. <laughs> um, yes, things are holding pattern. Bleak. It's a holding yeah, it's a hold, it's, mm. This is, yeah, when people are calling this the new normal, I was saying this isn't the new normal. This is the holding pattern before the proverbials hit the fan um, mm-hmm. and things become a lot tougher. I'll go to your, your next question, your, sorry, your, your third question next, about trust because mm. um, this isn't just about trust in government. I think that a LinkedIn post very recently had me consider the psychological contract 
which I believe is which is all, always dynamic between employee and uh, an employer. But I think we're seeing a real mismatch between employees who are genuinely concerned about their livelihoods, their health and the health of their family right now, and organisations really concerned about staying alive as a business. Because whether it's shareholders or other types of investment, a lot of organisations have a certain runway, a certain amount of cash to keep them alive for a certain number of months. So the mismatch is likely to be that organizations need to make up for lost opportunity and need people to commit to whatever it takes in order to make up for that lost opportunity to keep them alive till Christmas, to keep them alive till next summer, especially because we're losing so much summer this year, which is peak trade for so many businesses. And employees themselves are worried quite rightly about the things that are close enough to them. Can we bridge that gap? I worry that I think the dynamic is going to mean that is going to become an employer's market and there is going to be so much talent available. And in situations like that, I think it sometimes brings the worst out in employers and they know that they are boss and the employee market can become even tougher. This new normal and the hope that we have for benevolent business and the new organization will falter because I think that the trust is likely to be at an all-time low as there are mixed expectations of employees and employers. I think we're in for a, a rough, rough ride. Yeah. I think you're right about trust being at that in terms of an all-time low, but almost counterintuitively, it's also at, a, at an all-time high because I've had to trust that people will go home and they can't see them and they yeah. will continue to deliver, which has broken that sort of presenteeism that a lot mm. of organisations had. Rather than managing to KPIs or deliverables, they've been managing to, did you show up at eight and leave at five or four or whatever the time may be? So that trust is movement, I think, is going to be massive, as you say, in the next mm. six to 12 months. So the other one was where there's been a hole. So, for example, in New Zealand, our biggest carrier in New Zealand used to be an international carrier. It's now going to be for the longer term, probably a a local carrier. They're not going to regional airports, for example, at this point. We're now seeing organisations, entrepreneurs going, oh, well, we can actually fill that gap. Same with the food in the UK. Is it that 60% of our whatever's come from here, we could grow that. So will there be a rise of the entrepreneur to fill these voids? I think it's sure, yes. I think there's a great opportunity there. From an idealistic perspective, I always feel a little sad being uh, more of an internationalist and believing that we have more in common than that which divides us. I feel a little sad, but then as soon as I get past that, I think that this has only got to be good for the environment as well. If, if we're not shipping um, totally. uh, or certainly flying uh, goods halfway around the world or even locally, then that's got to be good for the environment. I think that, uh, that a lot of trade was initiated and certainly the, the groundwork was done for trade before we truly knew the impact of what this meant to the environment. So hopefully we can help to redress some of that. And I don't think that that would be too bad a thing. I think that uh, as long as this doesn't dissolve into some kind of nationalistic chest thumping, uh, <laughs> we're better than you, which of course I don't think ever ended well, then I think that, uh, that if it's saving the environment rather than creating conflict, then I'm all for that. But I think that you're right. I think that, uh, that there is an entrepreneurial opportunity and anything that's going to perhaps tackle some of the monopolies that go on with some of these behemoth organizations, which I do know are, are huge employers, I think can be a good thing. And I think that, uh, that if what we, we are likely to see from the crises that are facing from us are up and coming organizations led by entrepreneurs who see how to do things 
more efficiently and with less friction. Uh, I only hope that there are lessons learned from Silicon Valley where I think that we had dangled in front of us this, this new way of working, whether it be your Googles, your Facebooks, your Twitters and Amazon. And I think that, uh, that we've seen unethical practice, whether that be in employment or in data harvesting and the manipulation of data that's been harvested for malevolent usage. You know, hopefully we can see something that's going to be more akin to the human spirit rather than just to profit. Data for good, right? And if you haven't watched Hacked, people should. (laughs) Yes, that's (laughs) right. understand what happened. Oh, my goodness. Where did that guy even go from Cambridge Analytica? Hopefully he's still in jail. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) this is is the podcast of Learning 3.0 with the uh, Learning and Development podcast hosts. So (laughs) we should probably talk about learning. (laughs) Yes. So with all that in mind, because that's great context in terms of you know global economies, what do you think is going to emerge next for learning? Um, I was talking to Laurie Niles-Hoffman and, and she was saying she'd seen with 2002, 2008, this emergence of compliance, for example. That was sort of her take on what she would see emerging, given this is sort of what we've just discussed is more of a sort of a global economic. What do you think is going to emerge this time? Well, I think that uh, that if we look at uh, what's happening now, I think we're seeing a hastening of emerging trends, whether that be, I believe that there were four emerging trends that were critical to the transformation and the efficacy of learning and development. And we're seeing these move forward. There's number one, data-driven decision-making. Now, I don't believe that L&D has become data scientists overnight, but with the, the reliance upon user insights to find out what it is that users are trying to do. By users, I just mean employees, but if we're talking... Um, technology solutions if they're not using then there's something severely wrong so user insights to understand what it is that people are trying to do and they're not able to do efficiently the adoption of agile Mm -hmm. uh, so that people moving fast in order to first of all understand the experience of those people they're seeking to influence but then to get not perfect solutions out and then iterate over time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that it's not strictly uh, agile with a, with a capital A, but it's certainly more of an agile mindset, as I had Sarah Allen from Axi UK describe on, the, on my podcast recently. I thought that was a good description, actually. Do you want to explain mm-hmm. the difference between agile with an A and agile with a small a? Yeah, sure. So Agile with a capital A is an approach that is grounded in software development. And it's a discipline really in a collaborative working between the Agile team and the people that you're seeking to affect, certainly in an L&D perspective. So working collaboratively means, first of all, understanding what it is that they're trying to do and working with them on potential solutions. Those solutions not being perfect, but being minimum valuable products in order to move the needle in a meaningful way. And there are rituals to go with that. There is the creation of a backlog to prioritize what you'll be working on, working in um, squads or, or teams that congregate together to help to solve a particular problem. There are roles such as scrum master and product owner in order to make sure that what's being done is done. There are rituals like stand-ups and retrospectives uh, using perhaps Kanban boards. And, And whilst that might just sound like a load of guff and fluff, it really isn't. Agile is misinterpreted as not having a plan and hurrying towards getting something done. But it's a discipline and it's one that's grounded in making meaningful difference by inching forward, but keeping an eye on the results all along the way to make sure that you're continuing to do more of the stuff that makes a difference and removing or less of the stuff that isn't making a difference. So that's 
agile with a with a capital A, but agile with a small A is open to interpretation. It could be just moving faster to get stuff out. You're right. Uh, that plugs a gap. Uh, yeah. So so there, there's less discipline to it, but you can be more agile without being capital A agile. All I'd say to L and D are there are some great success stories of L and D teams who have educated themselves on capital A agile and are making have have changed the relationship between themselves and their organizations and are delivering way in excess of what they could have possibly done in the old waterfall approach so there are huge benefits and I'd point people in the direction of Sky's blog series Sky based here in the UK I was just going to say this that was amazing that's your best podcast I reckon (laughs) your best podcast was awesome yeah it was awesome (laughs) yeah so Tracy Waters I spoke with on the podcast but her and her team have written a blog series called Agile in Learning and published it on the Medium Medium. uh, platform yeah and and that outlines their entire journey and to say that that's been worthwhile would be an absolute understatement. But I would say those two approaches are not to be confused. Small A agile is a step in the right direction. And it's what a lot of people have had to do in the face of people working from home, yeah. managers then expected to be accountable for performance and productivity when they're not in the same location. So there's, yeah. there's almost like a new rules. And so, so agile has been experimented with in that regard. The third emerging trend is digital first. Before you talk about digital first, I will say that podcast that you had with Tracy on Sky, and I think it was August last year, I think I've re-listened to that quite a few times. And I laughed when you said at the beginning, oh my God, you know, agile, you know, that just would make many people roll their eyes. And and I was just like the, the eye roller of like, oh, agile, yeah, right. But absolutely, if you listen to that, it is actually amazing. The medium is also very good. It's also interesting like that we have a there's a company in New Zealand who was actually going down the route of actually helping L and D teams and HR teams become more agile. And I was really sad to see they pivoted when COVID happened to now become we're experts in how to do online delivery. And I'm thinking mm. that was so short term focused. You know, they could have absolutely yeah. had this, you know, longer term, I think this is where it's going, right, with L and D teams. Yeah. And if you're not with capital A doing this. This is where the relevance, you know, and they'll be the ones that disappear. So, sorry, carry on. Third point. No, that's all right. no, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the third point was digital first. I think for too long in learning and development, we've seen online solutions as supplementary to face-to-face, whereas in our personal lives, uh, we will go to Google uh, a lot mm-hmm. of the time before we ask anybody. Because we realize Google and YouTube help equip us to do things that we weren't able to do before. But L&D have been stuck in the past thinking, well, you can't teach skills unless it's in a classroom. Like we've (laughs) got some kind of magic formula. It's absolutely not true. What we ignore during that time is that people need our help as they transition into and through our organizations. They need sustained help as they face unfamiliar situations and challenges for the very first time. But we absolve ourselves of that by saying, ha, but don't you worry, new manager. Even if you come on our course two years later, it'll be worth it. They've been floundering for months. But we've, we, have, we can be arrogant and deluded enough to think that we can make them wait because they will only learn to be a manager with us. I can mm. tell you, the most successful managers go nowhere near the L&D department. So we can either take the opportunity that's available to us using digital, which means, first of all, expecting a hell of a lot more than we currently do. Not from... Uh, suites of generic e-learning in uh, in clunky systems. I'm not meaning that one iota. I mean bringing 
the information, the local know-how and insights that makes people successful in your organization to those who really need it when they need it. So, so I think that we're seeing that there is an expectation that we should lead with digital solutions in order to make the difference that we are intending to rather than just relying on digital to supplement any face-to-face. But I think we have to challenge a lot of what we do. Spotify isn't a successful platform because it replicates the record store experience. So the problem they've solved isn't how do we get enough people into this record store and get them to buy the limited records that we have before they go next door to another. They're giving you all the music you could possibly want in a way that will keep you on their platform for a long time because it's what you actually want. They've actually re-engineered the relationship between people and music based on desires. What L&D do is still trying to make record shops with computers. I know what we'll do. We'll do a webinar. We'll take our training program and we'll give it to you in a thinking, no, that's not what we want. I don't want a webinar and I didn't want the training. I want to do my job better and faster and improve my prospects. And the opportunity with digital is to help us to shortcut and help people to do that thing better. At the moment, I think we're, we're stuck in the dark ages thinking that, L&D's role is the delivery of content or the provision of content and the exposure to said content is going to make a significant difference, but it doesn't. And that's why L&D are in the business a lot of the time of byproducts, which is if you've been with us three days, if you take one thing away. So what I've done is I've dismissed like the three days of my hour time together. And as a byproduct, this may be useful to you. So what we say to people is the knowledge transfer model may be fatally flawed because people don't retain information in that way. They say, yeah, but it does some good, doesn't it? And you're thinking, no, you're dealing in byproducts <laughs> and not intentional and purposeful performance and results. So I think that there is so much badly wrong, but we need to reframe our value. We need to expect more from ourselves and then Uh, extend that value proposition to our people and then work. This is why Agile works so well. If we understand the problem we're trying to solve, we work with the people that we're seeking to influence so that they can get the results that are meaningful for them and the reason that they're in the organization, then we can turn the dial to do more of what works, which is fundamentally different from how do I take what I was doing face-to-face and put that on a computer? It's bonkers that we're still thinking like this so <laughs> most people are in my experience in the last couple of months it's <laughs> what they're thinking yeah. oh yeah just turning like Teams. what they have into online zoom yeah <laughs> i think the other thing that probably lnd is not thinking about and it's not data but it's actually technology and i think mm. this is probably something that one of the podcasts you talked about is that if i'm a new manager and I put a request into my data com, my HR system for a request for a new staff member, a contractor, whatever, that that then triggers a resource in the LMS that then delivers a checklist or a piece of information that would actually help them in their first hire as a new manager. And I think it's that actually the integrations of systems because often the clunky LMS will sit there by itself and it's not getting fed data from a whole lot of other places that can then deliver. What do you think about that? I mean, because the technology is there, we're just not doing it. Yeah, that's right. But, and, and that's why I think that we should spend less time on the solutioneering and more time on the problem solving because yeah. too, much, too often we say, so L&D have been guilty of scaffolding learning for, for decades now, which means they look at what they've got 
and they try to make sense of what they've got for their people. So they're always looking at the solution again. So people aren't looking at it. I know why. It's because it's too difficult to get to, or they don't know it's here, or the worst one of all, our people don't know how to learn. And that is all based on <laughs> we are looking at our solution and people aren't engaging in it in the way that we want them to. We spent more time in their world understanding what it is that they were trying to do, recognizing people are already having an experience. And if we can get to them when their eyes and minds are wide open because they need to adapt to a situation, then we have them. All we need to do is understand the experience they're having and seek to enhance the inefficiencies within that. As people come into our organization, they are trying to get the right stuff done. They're trying to understand the means of communication and the means of influence. This is at all levels. At senior leadership level, I felt for two years the level of exposure. Yes, you have exposure to the most senior people in the organization, but you are also standing on your own on the top of a mountain exposed to all this wind no one's got your back what we're doing to help people i know what we'll do we'll just refine our management development program and we'll put them through it said the person who's never been a manager or an executive level but if you're working agile to understand what is it that you're trying to do as you're transitioning what are you experiencing how are you feeling what can i do to help you right now then you build up these valuable user insights so that everything you do is an experiment to make a meaningful difference. But whilst we are categorizing topics and content for the purposes of our own categorization and delivery, so we've got our time management, our presentation skills, our first-line manager stuff, that's for our convenience, then we miss the trick. We have to start with the people backwards. What is it that they are trying to do? But that needs a re-engineering of our profession. And also, we probably need to let go of a lot of generic solutions because it's not the generic stuff that people need help with. It's the contextual stuff about how to get the right stuff done here, where I'm working in this very unique organization that I don't have a, a roadmap for otherwise. So it's a completely different exchange, but we need to step up and expect more. Mm. And I think that's where Bob Mosher's five moments of need are brilliant because if you have that in your mind, something's new, something's changing, to do something new is brilliant because it actually then allows you to decide where that goes. But it's very easy as well because you start with the moment of apply. So, yes. so whether it is something new, whether it's something more, whether, whether it's about change or solving a problem. So once you've got that, you start with a person and you realise what is it you're trying to do and affect and then we do, Then you work backwards from there. So once you've then got your workflow learning, you step back and you've completed the, uh, pretty much the whole of the gap. And then you say, and then the cherry on top of the cake is we'll just bring them together for half a day and then we can talk with them about X. Whereas what we normally do is we take a look at a problem and go, oh yeah, I know the problem with there. It's time management. And we'll develop a program and we'll deliver that program. And once we've got everybody through that program over a series of weeks, we sit back and we wonder, what was the return on investment of that? Was that worth it? Oh, no, how would we do that? Has anybody got yeah. an algorithm or, you know, or, or something we could, we could do? Could we call those people to find out whether we could bring them in, whether we've got the return on investment? Of course, there's no return on investment because we didn't understand the problem enough to understand what meaningful difference could mean if we got involved. We decided we were going to deliver this solution and then we would try to figure out whether that made any difference or not. Again, it's bonkers. So to your point about standing on a mountain, no one's it winds in your back, no one's got your back, because a lot of L&D haven't been in that senior leadership mm. sort of position, they also possibly don't have the commercial or business acumen. Is that important? Like, do we think that these they need to have been these things? Or is it just the fact they need an agile mindset? 
Look, I think that, uh, that if you don't understand how your organization makes money, or you, to use Kevin M. Yates's phrase, I had him on the podcast, what it means for your organization to win, then you can't do this because L&D isn't about the isolation of skills and the delivery of content in the way that I've described it before. You can't understand what your people are trying to achieve and then say to them, well, did you know that there's a phobia associated with presentation skills and that phobia is called X, but we can help you overcome that by centering yourself. You know, it's all bonkers. It's all bananas. Like what you need to be understanding is why is presenting important to this group of people in this room right now? And what is the shortest distance between them not knowing what to do next and me helping them with what they need to do next? And then realizing that they will learn the real lessons in their reality, in their flow of work, when the expectation is on them to design, deliver, and and all of this stuff. We need to truly understand what it is that they're expected to do and help them when they face these. I always say now, the last bastion of learning and development is timeliness. Because people face a challenge, a challenge enough or an unfamiliar situation enough for them to recognize or for them to be told they need to attend a program. Where's L&D? I tell you, (laughs) nowhere in sight. We are weeks away. And then you go, but we have some generic content online. No, no, no. This is, I don't need to know how to do a presentation and be educated on the phobia around it and then waste 25 minutes trying to, to see whether there's anything on here to understand how to pitch to my clients, what templates to use, what successful people already do here. That's, that's not included on here. But what we say to people is we'll go on this program and it's outsourced to a vendor and that vendor comes in and goes, I kind of know your business. I've been delivering this for two years, never done the job, don't know what's actually going to. So, so it's an educational exercise in the same way as my daughter goes to a school in preparation for a job that may not exist in the future. But the end is not getting her a job. Academia and work, there's a clear distinction. And I think that it causes a lot of frustration that even at university, it's not preparation for the workplace. Academia is a separate thing. But learning and development, we treat it the same way, that learning and development is an academic exercise. And then we say to people, now you need to transfer that back to the workplace. Excuse me? Yeah, you know, we need to transfer that back. Wait a minute, you're the the learning person. Didn't you learn how to do this? Yep, and I'm giving you all the hard work here as well. Everything about transferring, this is down to you, but not you alone because nothing will change if your manager doesn't help you. Okay, my manager's going to help me. What do they know about this as well? No, that, you know, it's just a weird exchange where we believe we're one thing, but we're not. We are actually another. And let's go back to what I mentioned before. When you are at senior leadership level in L&D, they don't care that this falls down if the person doesn't transfer it back to the workplace. They don't care if their manager isn't the one supporting them to do this. What they care about is that that country is ready to pivot with a new set of skills for new ends. And if L&D can't help them, then what happens a lot of the time is that a shadow L&D department is created where that senior stakeholder goes and gets a friend of theirs that they worked with at their previous company to come and deliver something because yes. L&D didn't, weren't able to make the significant change. Absolutely. And I think there's a languaging and understanding of learning issue here as well. And you say, you know, Mm -hmm. academia versus application. People don't understand that knowledge and education and training are one thing. Application Mm -hmm. is another. There's just not that delineate. It's not in the language of it. So 
Yeah. And that's why we get so wrapped up in the word learning. Learning and development are absolutely obsessed with the meaning of the word learning. What I'd say to them is look up and be obsessed by performance and results. Yep. Working back from the moment of applier is your friend because you don't have to know everything about your business. You do need to know what it means for your organization to be winning in any particular department, especially in a matrix or in a large organization where winning doesn't actually mean sales because there are service departments. There are still rules of winning. There are service level agreements. There are the dynamics within teams. They're still working together. There are stakeholders. Whatever it means for a team to be winning is what L&D should be having conversations about and affecting what people do in order to affect what they achieve. But a lot of the time it's not. It's creating popular programs in classrooms and it's almost isolated from reality because you're getting eights, nines and tens on happy sheets. And I can see popularity is very addictive. But the problem is, I think in the world we're about to enter and with the proliferation of, uh, of data systems and dashboards, it means that L&D leaders are going to become very savvy about what spend in L&D equates to in the same way as they've been able to do in marketing very recently, which was an art. Marketing was an art 15 years ago. Now it's a science. And I think the learning and development is likely to become a science and not an art once data-driven decisions and dashboards, accessible dashboards for leaders have become, as I said, more prolific. Well, hopefully we see more and more of that in our um, delivery platforms, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, indeed, yes. <laughs> and I believe you might know some that are coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Can I shamelessly plug Loop for a, a platform? Just to... <laughs> I didn't say that. You said that. <laughs> but yes. So given all that, what are teams, the R&D teams going to look like? Six months, 12 months? Right. In six months, 12 months, I fear that many teams won't look different. But <laughs> that said, many will. There are more, I'm seeing and speaking with more and more people who recognize that you can't continue to do the same thing and expect different results. Tracy said that on the podcast that we mentioned earlier, that it doesn't matter how many programs you deliver and how much generic content you fill a platform with, you will make the same difference, which is negligible by continuing to do that same approach. But understanding what critical points of failure are in your organization, so using data, balancing that with evidence to understand what it is that people are experiencing, those people that you wish to influence by working with them to understand what they are trying to do and the inefficiencies within their practice in order to get the right results, so evidence-based, in order to quickly work with them to make a meaningful difference in their performance and results, agile, and holding it, uh, yourself account to making that meaningful difference and using the change in the trajectory towards the achievement of KPIs. So milestones along the way to know you're making a difference. So focusing on performance and results rather than learning metrics are all things that people are grasping hold of. It's so less scary. And I think that that plots a path of what progressive and forward-thinking learning and development people are doing. But that requires something that I think is lacking in a lot of learning and development function, and that is leadership. When we have managers and leaders in programs and they say to us, well, we can't do this. If we do this, we'll be out on our own. Like if we are coaching our managers and we're doing that, and we say to them every time, this is where you need to be a leader. Now, as soon as we flip the tables and we say, so what you need to do is you need to have performance consulting conversations. You need to experiment in order to move the needle. You need to lead with digital and take your organization with you. We hear a lot, but people want training. And our response needs to be, 
We need you to be a leader now. Don't just accept what people are asking you for. But when your stakeholder comes to you and asks for training, it's highly likely that they've already sold training to their team. So before they come to you, they've said to their team or members of their team, I'm going to get you some training. So then it comes to you. We want you to deliver some training. So when you then say, oh, before we get to the solution, let's talk about the problem a little bit more. They're going to be saying to you, no, 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 no. The transaction has, <laughs> so been, has been partly completed. I just need you to deliver. But what we need to do is take that conversation from, but the, you can answer that conversation with yes, I'm all ears, but then take that conversation to what's riding on this. Is this critical? Are you expecting your people to do something different in order to get some results? Sometimes people are going to be saying, look, this is absolutely critical. So brilliant. Okay. Can I just get some notes down here? And what you could do is you can continue with the yes conversation, but lead them towards show me the data. Can mm-hmm. I speak with some of your team? Or can we just try something to see whether that makes a meaningful difference? Oh, that works with them. How about we provide some resources? That, so you can take people on a journey without saying the word no. There are some times when people are going to say, look, Rastika, I just want you to run me a training course. We haven't had any training for a little while. We just want to bring the people together, blah, blah, blah. And sometimes you have to do that. I'd say that don't dress it up as training. Sometimes it's nice to have a bit of a get together or a bit of a workshop and that can plug the gap. We've got to have some kind of professional integrity. But most of the time, if it means anything meaningfully, then you can say yes and take people on a bit of a journey. It doesn't mean that there's going to be absolutely no face-to-face. One of the the conversations I hate is the digital versus face-to-face which I think is narcissistic on the part of learning and development. What we should should be looking at is the problem that is actually being experienced by the people we're seeking to influence. And then the most appropriate way that we can move the needle. A lot of the time, that could be with, uh, with a conversation. Sometimes it's about process and clear communication of roles and clarification of practices. Sometimes it's going to be about equipping people with a little bit more know-how and holding them to account to actually performing. And sometimes you need to bring people together to have a conversation. So it isn't about one approach versus another. The only versus is doing something with an intention to make a meaningful difference and delivering something to count the bums on seats and the days and time spent learning. Because I'm no big believer of the equation that learning equals performance. That is a huge guess, an estimate, and one we've got wrong. Well, if people are learning, surely they'll get better at their job. Again, it's one of the bonkers things that we've got to take in our look at in our organization, that learning does not equate to performance. Understanding what a problem is and working with a group of people to address that, take accountability, and then sustain their performance to get continued results, that is likely to equal better results. But the other way around is mythology at best deluded probably at worst (laughs) so what would teams look like hopefully they're going to be looking at affecting what is really meaningful for the people they're seeking to influence and the way that they'll do that is with a great deal of understanding of what it is that needs to change working with the people they seek to affect scaling what works so using technology to make efficiencies because working one-to-one with people isn't scalable but you can scale information local know-how and insights in order to seed that across an organization but there will still be people who deliver stuff because they don't have the leadership or they don't feel as if they have the license to do anything different but that's a fate i believe that's a failure of leadership within our profession rather than rather than too much else 
when I interviewed Laurie Niles Hoffman, I asked her the same question. I said, you know, what do you think teams will look like? And she said, you know, realistically, she thinks that 30% will be able to do it, 30% will be able to learn how to do it, and 30% may not make it. And I think that really comes back to mindset and, as you say, leadership. And are people ready to do what you've just said? Because it makes complete sense. I think there's a willingness as well. I think that uh, that do L&D people want to do this? And I think that there's a significant percentage of L&D people who consider what we do an art and don't want to get involved. And so I think the willingness plays a big part. So I I agree wholeheartedly with Laurie. I think that's a fair assessment. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. And last question is um, around technology. And do you think that we will see, like, for example, in 2002, when we had the dot-com bubble in 9-11 in America, 2002 was when Articulate launched, been super successful as a product (laughs) ever since, um, I chuckle. Do you think that we will see an emergence of new technology now and what might that look like? Good question. I think that there's every chance. I'm no fan of e-learning. I think that it's been an abomination uh, and something that, that largely we should be embarrassed about in learning and development. That's our attempt to put classrooms on computers And it is what I mentioned earlier. It's like Spotify trying to recreate the old record shop experience with limited stock, which has a limited appeal for nostalgics. But I think that our our role is bigger than this. I think that we are likely to be disrupted more than disrupt ourselves in learning and development because I'm not sure we will wake up quick enough to realise that truly understanding the problems that our organisations are experiencing and the people that are expected to, to perform. I don't, I don't think that we have the wherewithal to, to pivot quickly enough towards that. So what could that look like? Well, all you need to do is, is have a system that plugs into business information. It yeah. shows you critical points of failure. You plug in the HR system, and that shows you the people involved. You then zero in on the people most keenly Uh, experiencing that failure. Again, it's already there. You just zero in. You have conversations. You you work with them to understand you're accountable for this, aren't you? Would you like uh, our help in uh, in doing this? You get them moving in the right direction. You take that learning and you seek to automate it by creating resources that collect the information that they have, the local know-how, which is the most efficient way of operating, and the insights, which is the ways that different people think about that problem as they've gone to solve it. And you make that available. You open up your cult- the, the culture. You show people and say, this is what we worked on. This is the way we did that. But it's all in the context. It's what we were talking about with the five moments of need. Starts with the moment of apply and then works backwards. And then you've got what Sky have got. You've got a highly automated learning and development function, which is getting the right stuff to the right people at the right time. L&D's role then is to look and see how close to the moment of need you're actually getting and to, to what extent the, the results are there. So the L&D dashboard is showing you performance and results. And then underneath that is what L&D have done meaningfully to make a difference and what they've done, which is making no difference. And you remove the stuff that's making no difference, or you at least assess it to see whether you can uh, change the frame or, or change the timing of that. But you're running a lot of this stuff on autopilot because you've got smarts that are helping you to do the stuff that matters. So I think that what I'm hoping is that L&D connect the dots between performance data and result, well, KPIs, it's going to be it's more about results. So the results data, 
connected with the, with the performance data, work with people in order to gain the evidence on what it is that they're trying to do and what the inefficiencies are, and then use their limited attention and, and uh, the people that they have on budget a lot of the time, which I think we're all going to see, on solving those real problems. I think we will then see L&D moving faster. It will be cheaper. It will be less risky, but more importantly, based on efficacy, our ability to achieve desired outcomes and not our ability to deliver content and programs. So what would you say to the person that says, but we've got a clunky LMS, we can't do that? (laughs) Uh, in In the words of Adam Harwood, when I was on a panel with him at the CIPD show a couple of years ago, his words were, unplug it and see if anyone notices. Um, <laughs> I love it. <laughs> because, because if you've got this solution in inverted commas that was meant to transform your organization and you are struggling to get people to use it unless it's mandatory, it's a problem. It's not a solution. I'd say spend more time on understanding what the real problems are. It might be what I was doing at Disney, which was bypassing the LMS completely and running accelerated apprenticeships, largely face-to-face, in order to make a meaningful difference and then you might choose smarter technology once the license runs out in order to make that work but i would say if you spent more time on the problem than you do at looking at solutions then you will find that a you probably have there are a lot of free things that will get you moving whether that be google forms whether that be uh, yes. form there are, there are plenty that can get you going the only thing that that doesn't provide you with the high level of automation to get that going mm. but i would say that spend more time trying to understand the problem and you realize that these oversimplistic silver bullet solutions, whether they integrate with your HR systems or not, are more of a problem than they are a solution. So I'd say that if you are struggling to get engagement in your platform and your e-learning, I would say go back to the problem. Stop trying to push what isn't the solution. Fantastic. Well, I must say it's been awesome having you on the other side of the seat because we get to hear your (laughs) ideas for a whole hour (laughs) and not interviewing other people where we get little snippets of your wisdom along the way. So it's been fabulous. How can people get hold of you? What's the best way? So they can, as we mentioned all the way through, you can uh, they can listen on the podcast, which is the Learning and Development Podcast on uh, on all good uh, podcasting platforms. I am on Twitter at David in Learning which on my bio, you'll find links to my LinkedIn. I'm always happy to connect and continue the conversation. So uh, so please reach out and uh, I look forward to being in touch. Yeah, thank you. It has been just very interesting and uh, so aligned to uh, so many things that we've been talking about. Thank you very much. Thanks, Christika. If you'd like to get in touch with me to suggest topics or speakers, you can contact me on LinkedIn or Facebook or find the links in the show notes below. Keep on smiling. Oh,